This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Tell Me This. I'm Brianne Roos here with Carrie Burkowski, and we are so looking forward to this episode of season four. So as you know, in season four, we're focusing on belonging in relationships. And our guest today, Dr. Mariana Carlucci, is going to share her perspectives and experiences with with us. And I just know that it's going to be a great conversation because I love all the time that I get to spend with Mariana. So (laughs) this is a gift, I think, to have this this time. So thanks for being here. Of course, of course. So let me provide a kind of a formal introduction to Mariana, and then we'll get into our questions about belonging. Dr. Mariana Carlucci is an associate professor of psychology at Loyola University, Maryland, who aims to shine a light on issues of diversity and social justice in her classroom. Dr. Carlucci, who was originally from Venezuela, moved to Miami when she was six years old, and she's been at Loyola since 2011. She received her bachelor's, master's, and PhD in psychology from Florida International University. Dr. Carlucci describes her relationship with her students as symbiotic, one in which they learn from one another. She says, when a student enters my classroom, they are my student for life. I'm interested not only in their ability to learn the class material, but also about their growth and development as people. She's specifically interested in two areas of psychology the intersection of psychology and the law, and sex and sexuality. Using principles from cognitive and social psychology, she has several lines of research in these areas, juror decisions, deception detection, interrogations, experiences of LGBTQ people in and outside of the legal system, and sexuality. As the equity and inclusion faculty fellow in academic affairs at Loyola, her work has centered around equitable hiring practices recruitment and retention of minoritized faculty, faculty development, such as inclusive teaching practices and leadership development, and creating a welcoming environment for faculty, students, and staff. And I love the ending because I think you'll feel very welcomed in this conversation because that's just (laughs) how she, the energy that she exudes online, on Zoom, wherever we are. Thanks, Brianne. Absolutely. Um, So Mariana, we always start with a check-in. We just want to ask, how you are. So how are things going today? How's your week? How's your family? Oh, wow. Those, those are great places. We're going to go deep. Um, <laughs> things are going great. I actually have some family visiting right now. Um, and so it's been nice to reconnect. And uh, we, we took a walk last night to get some ice cream. The weather has been wonderful in Maryland. I don't know uh, where your listeners are 
situated mostly, but you know, we're officially in fall, which is uh, the best time here in Maryland. So I'm, I'm feeling really good. And I did want to say that my parents moved me from Venezuela to Miami in the bio. It seems like this six-year-old just woke up one day and moved to Miami. <laughs> so I just want to uh, thank my parents for making that decision. And maybe we'll get into some of that today, but, but thank you for asking, how are you all? Uh-oh good we're doing well yeah Yeah. it's also fall so i'm in massachusetts so um it's full-on fall the leaves are just starting to turn which is this is my favorite time of year to be honest so we're doing well up here thanks for asking for sure yeah what about brand yeah doing well fall is great lots of field hockey games for my girls (laughs) and they are beautiful in the fall because you know you're not dying of the heat and i bought a snow hat yesterday like i bought one of the pom-pom hats because i know it's going to get cold soon but i don't need it yet so i'm in the in the sweet spot so it's great awesome that's great very nice so i have to i have to say i love i love listening to the bio especially mariana because we're just meeting you know we're just getting to know each other and we had another loyola faculty on the podcast a bit ago um dr jen watkinson who's a Mm -hmm. um in the counseling um you know programs and what she said resonated with me as i was listening to your bio which is i found my people Right. Mm-hmm. And and just mm-hmm. listening to your bio and, and the work that you do and describing your relationships with your students as symbiotic. Ugh, mm-hmm. I just I just feel like you're speaking my language. So yeah, <laughs> I'm grateful to be in this space with you and to now be able to call you a colleague. And I really look forward to to working with you in the future. So thanks, Karen. Yeah. Um, you know, um, just from, you know, speaking with us that this, this podcast really is about belonging and this year we're mm-hmm. focusing on relationships. And so I would just love to hear how your experiences and you can define those experiences very broadly, how they inform how you understand and think about this idea of belonging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you know, I've been thinking about this for, ever since Brianne said, hey, do you want to do this? So it's been, I've been back braining it is what I call it, where my brain does a lot of work, but I don't know what it's doing. So (laughs) I think there's a couple of things that I want to say about belonging. I think one thing that I sort of woke up with was this feeling that it's not really a destination. Um, There are so many times in my life where I have had to re-establish my belonging in a community. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I know that perhaps it's, these are sort of hidden identities for me. Um, But obviously, as Brian mentioned, I'm Hispanic. I'm an immigrant to this country. English is not my first language. I'm also a person who identifies as a lesbian um and these are all things that people wouldn't necessarily know about me um if they just looked at me and so um belonging is really complex for me because there are all these things inside of me that people outside can't really see so when i'm with my people they don't know that they're with me and so i need (laughs) to sort of be vulnerable and disclose to them who i am so that we can all belong Mm -hmm. together um and at the same time because of those sort of hidden um, identities, I sometimes belong in places where I don't feel like I'm with my people. Does that make sense? Um, So when I'm in 
communities of primarily white individuals like Loyola is, I might belong just through sight alone, but my mm. cultural experiences, my background, the way that I grew up is very, very different from these folks. And so as I thought about belonging, I thought about, well, it's not really a destination. Depending on where life takes you and moves you, you might belong immediately um, or it could take some time. And I, I think I experienced that the most when I moved to the United States and I, I didn't speak the language. And I, I've spoken about this um, in other forums. And so I'm sorry if this is uh, repetitive, but, you know, coming to a place where I could not build a relationship through language really gave me a view into creating relationship in other ways, right? So sharing a treat that my mom had maybe packed for me in my lunch, um, because I couldn't say, hey, I'm new here, what's your name? Um, and sort of having to understand that belonging can happen through lots of different mediums, not just speaking to one another was my first foray into that. Being in Miami, however, for the um, for the from six to thirty, uh, so most of my time on this earth um, was a different kind of experience because I was surrounded by people who were culturally very similar to me. Mm. Um, even though Miami has lots of different people represented, and it's majority um, Cuban and Colombian and Venezuelan, and there's of course differences among those people. I, I definitely felt the cultural warmth that I was used to in my family and that I was used to in my home country. So I went from not belonging, say, in a, in a very specific way of not speaking the language at school, but then also belonging when we went to restaurants and supermarkets and play dates with people in our neighborhood, because I did feel um, that belongingness. So when I think of, okay, belongingness is not a destination, it's because it can literally change from one moment to another. Um, and I think about, you know, last week I went to a meeting with uh, President Sawyer and he was meeting with the Out Loyola group. So everyone in the room identified as queer in some way. And the energy in that room was just electric. Everybody knew each other, even though we didn't know each other necessarily. Um, and so when I think about, okay, where is it that I belong? Where is it that I feel that energy? It really could change from, you know, I'm in this uh, space with you all and I feel like I belong. I know that we're talking the same language. I know that we have the same heart about the way that we engage with our students. And then I could go to a meeting right after this and be the only queer person or be the only Latina or be the only person under 50. And so there are many ways um, that we can belong or not belong. And I think it changes maybe even hour to hour. And I think when we think about it in those ways, um, then it opens up a lot of interesting ideas and opportunities for how do we create belonging if it's so um, ethereal mm -hmm. and, and what are the things that allow people to feel like they belong from space to space. Yeah. Oh, I love, there's so much of that. I love, and I was at that meeting last week too. And I, or a couple of weeks ago and felt the same sort of, I That's didn't know I anybody cause I'm new. And yet I felt yeah. like I did know everybody, which was lovely. So, um, I love this idea, not a destination. 
Um, and I also really loved how you are keying in on this idea. I wrote down site belonging, which sort of mm-hmm. like you walk into a room and and you're with, you know, what your white colleagues. And and so, mm-hmm. and, then I, and then I wrote down the senses of belonging because you talked about sharing mm-hmm. a, a snack with a, with a so, <laughs> it, so it's really interesting sort of the language that you're using to describe it. And I sort of wanted to riff on that a little bit and hear your perspectives, yeah. which is I heard you say once cultural warmth. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious when you think of that word belonging, and I know just from hearing you and listening to you care deeply about language and how we use language. Yeah. When you hear that word belonging, what language do you associate with it? Like, I know it's a process. I know it changes. I know yeah. it's fluid. It's fungible. What words do you associate with that word to define yeah. it? Yeah, it's so funny that you mentioned that because the the word that kept going through my mind was calor, which is a Spanish word for warmth or heat. Mm. Um, And I want to tell you just a a quick little story about this cultural warmth. So um, and I I hope it doesn't take us down a path that you didn't want to go down. But um, before coming to Loyola, and um, this is not a knock on my students at Loyola. I love my students, and I hope we get to talk about um, the Loyola students at some point. But uh, when I taught at FIU as a graduate student, I had a class of about 95 undergrads. So very different experience from Loyola, you know, big auditorium. Um, and, you know, I was able to create a, a great environment for my students and for me. And we, we sort of got to know each other. And I remember at the end of the last semester that I was going to teach there, the majority of my students came and gave me a hug at the end of class. Um, and and that is, when I came to Loyola, that that's not necessarily how we interact with our students. Certainly, I have um, hugged my students at graduation and things like that. But there was something about like in Hispanic culture, when you say hello and goodbye to someone, you kiss them on the cheek, even if they're just kind of an acquaintance. Um, you you kiss them on the cheek and you hug them. And they were saying goodbye to me in a culturally relevant way. Mm-hmm. Not every student did it, of course, um, but it was not odd to me. What was odd to me was when I came to Loyola and, you know, students are very gracious and they show a lot of gratitude and they say, thank you so much. And they send you emails about how you've impacted their lives. But, and, and that's a different cultural warmth, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's intellectual, maybe it's, it's, um, it's a different sense. Um, they, they use their words, whereas my students in Miami were really using their entire bodies to say, hey, thank you for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I think about belonging, there, there's definitely that there's a there's a tactileness to it mm-hmm. um, that I really love. And um, I think it's it's who I am as a person, too. So I don't want to make too many generalizations about Hispanic people or queer yeah. people or this or that. But all of the identities that I sort of encompass really center around touch and sight and sound and um, transmitting a certain kind of energy towards other people. And that's what I think can fill a room with belonging, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it could be anything. It could be, you know, eye contact when you're introducing yourself to other people. Um, it could be sharing um, something that you're eating, although COVID has made that a little bit tricky. <laughs> can you believe we used to just sip things off of other people? <laughs> hey, you want to try my wine? Like, <laughs> or, eat, or eat peanuts out of a like common bowl, right? We don't do that yeah. I have to, the I have to say, common bowl. I love that. I love that example that you use. And I just think it's, I don't know, there's a, I could, there's a timing thing that's just crazy how the universe like brings things to us. Cause I was just prepping for a course tonight 
and I was watching a TED talk by this woman, Tiffany Watt Smith, who wrote a book called Book of Human Emotions. Mm -hmm. And what she talks about is how we often, you know, understate the contribution of culture and words mm. to the emotions that we feel and are cultivated. So I like I'm like, yeah, you just you just gave a perfect example of what she's trying to explain to this audience. So mm -hmm. I just that's an aside, but I just think that's so fascinating. So Yeah, and and there are many things, Carrie, where I sometimes especially when I'm speaking to my partner, I'll say there's no English word for this. So mm. I'm going to tell you the word in Spanish and then yeah. I'm going to tell you what the feeling is. Mm. And then that's a way that now I can communicate with her about the yeah. emotion that I'm feeling because it is very different. I remember I was uh, reading Brene Brown's latest um, book on the, I think, Atlas. 87 emotions, the yeah, Atlas of the, the Heart. Of yeah. the heart. Mm -hmm. And she says in um, the first few pages and also in her HBO special, and I don't have any relation to them. <laughs> Uh, I don't get any money from Brene Brown, but she says, we're not going, this is the only Brene Brown book that we're not going to translate because mm -hmm. emotions have such a cultural, um, uh, emphasis that she wouldn't be able to find the 87 emotions in that culture and that culture. Yeah. And so it's the one book that she's not going to translate because you just really can't. And I think that speaks to what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just love these like mind body connections that we can literally feel. Right. And what I love is that it was born maybe from a time when you didn't have the words. Right. So, I mean, yes. if you're tracing it back to when you were six, because we talk a lot on this podcast about the power of language and about the power of the words that we choose and what they mean mm -hmm. and, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But we've never gone this direction, Carrie, with like the senses and sort of what no. those words mean. And I really think that the fact that when you were thinking about defining belonging, you came up with the word color, right? To just feel this warmth. Mm -hmm. I love that. I mm -hmm. mean, that to me is, is this incredibly explicit definition in a way that we haven't yeah. explored before. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when you think about all of these relationships that you have with your students, with your family, your partner, I don't know. I mean, you're in a, so many yeah. relationships, right? How critical is belonging? do you think, to those relationships? Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this too. And, you know, I think um, maybe an offshoot and you all are the belonging experts. So I'm eager to hear what you think. But I think the the precursor to belonging is acceptance. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I maybe wasn't very good at growing up, right? Like I think I've, I've matured through this, especially in my partnered relationships. But um, is really accepting people for who they are. Mm -hmm. um, I think as a psychologist and have, I, 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 you know, my partner says that I'm a tinkerer. I like to tinker with things. I like to make things more efficient, make things better. Um, and I, I think at some point you can get tinkered out. And um, one of the things that I've really done with my students and the relationships that I am in with my friends and colleagues is really focus on the acceptance piece. Um, and once you're able to create a space where people feel accepted for who they are, and you really truly embody that, because I think we can all tell, again, whether it's that mind body connection or that energy, you can tell when someone's like, really in it with you and really wanting to hear what you have to say. And someone who's just waiting 
to give you feedback or waiting to hit you with a critique. And um, I think that there's space for that. I'm a, I'm a big fan of feedback. Brianne, you and I have talked about doing that in the classroom quite often. So it's not like I'm, I'm belittling that, but there is this um, portion or period in relationship building where I think that accepting each other for exactly who we are without any critique or feedback, just pure curiosity really creates that sense of belonging. And I think, I have never asked a student this, but I think it's what may keep my students coming back. Um, and Carrie, you were talking about like the timing of all of this. I just had a meeting yesterday with a student whom I haven't talked to in six years. So I cannot even tell you four professors that I had in undergrad, right? But these students are finding something here at Loyola, maybe finding something with me specifically um, and me with them, where because they feel accepted, they feel able to come back into this space with me. And so when I was talking to the student yesterday and they were telling me everything that they had done for the past six years, you know, it just felt like we were back home with each other. We were comfortable with each other because I had not let the student know in any way, hey, you need to go and be a psychologist. You need to go and be this thing. You need to go do this. This is how I expect you to grow. Um, but rather, I think I had left a, a space where they would feel accepted no matter what they did, whether they ended up being a psychologist or starting an ice cream shop, whatever they want, right? And I think that that's what keeps people coming back. And I, I would love to hear your thoughts on the people that you like to be around are likely the people where you can be your most 100% vulnerable person with, right? Um, you know, you're not going to be judged. And I think when we talk about belonging, we can talk about like what the space looks like and um, uh, whether the people are like you. But there is this other thing too, where you can feel like you're not accepted in the spaces where people are most like you. Like I think about my coming out process um, and I love my parents and, um, you know, they, they have come a long way, but they were not at all excited by the fact that I was gay. Um, and and I, I think that the, that's an understandable uh, place for them to have been based on their religious background and, and all of that. And so in the space where I could be my most self wasn't necessarily with my family who looked like me and spoke like me and had my same cultural background. It was with people who 100% accepted my uh, sexuality, for example. So it's a tricky thing to think about belonging. It's not this one thing. And it changes depending on the depth of that relationship. As my parents got to know me more for who I was, really, truly, because I had been hiding for them for so many years, then they were able to accept me fully, right? And so I think acceptance is sort of that precursor to belonging that we think we're going to get it just by virtue of being like the other people, but that might not always be the case. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Mariana, I want to ask a question that takes me back to the convocation address that you gave a couple of years ago, which I know our listeners have not necessarily had the privilege of hearing, but in it, you talked about your transition as a teacher and when you felt really connected to your students and mm -hmm. what you shared at the time was that that aligned with the time that you started to feel really connected and comfortable with yourself. Yeah. And this is what I'm hearing as you're speaking is this mm -hmm. wonderful acceptance of your students. And I can't help but connect back to that because if I remember right in your talk, you were speaking of the time before you started to really feel comfortable 
expressing who you were with your students. And then after, and you just felt more engaged and more connected. And that's when you started getting all these awards because they were like, she's incredible, right? And none of that seems coincidental to me. <laughs> right. So I'm curious about your thoughts on the connection between belonging to yourself mm. and that acceptance of others. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's such a great point. Um so I I have to say, and I, I've said in those remarks that this is a, a source of shame for me, but when I came to Loyola. I did not know what Jesuits were. I knew that it was a Catholic Jesuit university. And my experience of being in um, religious communities, I grew up Catholic and I went to Catholic school most of my life, was that I would not be accepted if I were gay. And so um, even though I had wonderful colleagues who, of course, accepted me, I wasn't willing yet to make that leap. And I think that there's a personal accountability and vulnerability there um, that, Brianne, you're just, you're kind of blowing my mind right now that, you know, you, you have to make the conscious choice to let other people see you, right? A lot of people are like, oh, I became vulnerable by lighting candles and doing yoga and listening to Brene Brown. And that's not really how it happens. You've got to make the the really sometimes dicey, brave choice to show up as yourself. And it took me six years to do that at Loyola, six full years. Um, and here's the other sort of shameful part of that is that I didn't necessarily start to become myself because I had some um, transcendence. It's because I had tenure. <laughs> I had the power uh, and the shield of knowing that I pretty much had a job for life. Although, you know, we can talk that that's a privileged statement and not all schools have tenure and stuff like that. But for the most part, I feel pretty comfortable um, that I will not be fired or that I'll, I'll always have my job as long as I'm doing it well. And when I had that shield and when I had that power, I then decided okay, like it's time for me to be able to let go a little bit. And I say in my talk, it was time for me to breathe. I had been holding my breath for six years. Um, I never told my parents, uh, my students that I was gay. I never told my students that I was an immigrant. I was afraid of what stereotypes they might use against me. Um, not for, on a conscious level, but on a subconscious level, right? Um, and once I was able to let go of that fear that I knew that I was going to be okay and I would always have a job, um, then I started to walk every single day into this place very differently. All of my decisions um, changed. And that's what I mean by making a conscious decision. I made a conscious decision to come out to my students. I made a conscious decision to bring my partner um, to different events. I talked openly about my history um, and coming to this country and how difficult that was. And I included things about me in my lectures. So, you know, zero to six years here at Loyola, you look at my lectures, there's no Mariana in there. There's just content. Now, 
Um, there's a balance. You don't want to make it all about yourself as a professor, <laughs> but there's more of me in there. I am sharing myself. And in that moment that I shared myself, my students started to share themselves with me. And that's where I started to get these long-term relationships. That's where I started to get students saying, hey, this is what's going on for me. Um, because when they went through the process of accepting me, then they were comfortable going through the process of letting me accept them. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it is a, a, a it's it's an active thing that we engage in. Um, and you know, when I think about reciprocity and and that kind of thing in relationships, really letting someone help you, letting someone see you, letting um, someone do the mental work of having to accept you, even if you're a little bit different. Um, that I think creates some sort of goodwill where they want you to do the same thing for them. Yeah. You know, I don't even know where to start. I have so many questions <laughs> and thoughts. Uh, I love this conversation. So thank you so much for the space. Um, I mean, I think the thing that you're reminding me of Mariana is it's just, you know, you read in the literature more and more now that belonging is subjective. Right. And so, mm -hmm. We are often, I have kids, we have kids, me and my partner have kids in um, elementary school and the teachers mm. are trying desperately to do, you know, SEL work and cultivate belonging and, and they do all this PD. And what it makes me wonder about is where, you know, how do we do this work knowing that it's, it's subjective, mm. right? How do we do that? Cause, cause as a new faculty member to Loyola, now I'm later in my career. So I was brave enough to ask hard questions and luckily I knew Brianne. So I was asking her questions. I can't be so bad if Brianne is there. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, and though like Loyola is now that I'm learning an open, mm -hmm. inclusive, and I feel like even at a place like Loyola that is trying very hard to live their mission, you mm -hmm. still felt like you had to be cautious, which mm -hmm. I completely understand and hear you. And I've been in spaces similar as well, mm -hmm. right? As a, as a mm -hmm. gay woman. And so it just, the question that keeps coming up for me is, well, if a place like Loyola is working so hard to live their mission and be inclusive and, and be compassionate, what do we need to do? What can we do? What should we do? And I'm thinking about strategies, right? Mm -hmm. To to cultivate that belonging, if it if it is mm -hmm. a subjective sort of sense. I don't know if you have. I'm sure you have thoughts thoughts on this. Like, I have some thoughts, but yeah. I, I want to bounce them off of you all. They might be a little trite, but I mean, the first thing that I try to do is really model it. So every room that I'm in. You know, if I can go and, and again, it's a conscious choice and and it, it is a lot of cognitive load to keep this in mind and say, yeah. if I disclose all of these things, these things about myself, there are 80 percent of the people in this room are going to say, great, that means that I can be myself. And there is a chance and I'm not talking about Loyola specifically, but just generally, there is a chance that, you know, 20 percent of people say, oh, I don't like her anymore. She's just you know, they, they might have some um, stereotypes. And so you do have to sort of roll the dice a little bit and hope that by you modeling that self-disclosure and that vulnerability and that self-acceptance, that that hits a, a um, large swath of the people that you're trying to cultivate this for. And so, 
Carrie, I, I do know that there's a lot of literature and books and fostering this sense of belonging. And, you know, maybe it's the way that I woke up today, but I think we're looking maybe outward, right? And we're thinking of what are the initiatives and this and that, and maybe the answer a little bit, or sometimes it's just to look inward and decide, am I going to make this decision today, right? So Carrie, think about you going to like the new faculty orientation and um, going through the whole day with no one saying anything about themselves. You would have left and said, okay, yeah, Loyola is a, a nice place. I'll, I'll, uh, the students will be good. And, you know, it looks like they've got nice classrooms and good technology services. Yeah, I'll be fine there. But my hope is that by hearing a little bit, someone say, I'm an immigrant, lesbian, and I love it here, that it allow you to think, oh, wow, like people are really are themselves there. And so I think it does start a little bit with modeling that for others, but just doing that internal work that will eventually get you to um, do that self-disclosure. Now, I, I did want to sort of uh, clarify this a little bit. There wasn't anything about Loyola specifically that made me feel like I couldn't disclose things mm -hmm. about themselves. Uh, or myself, um, I had lived in fear of who I was up until this point. And it took being at an institution with these sorts of values of Kerr, personalis and all of this, that I actually turned that to myself. Yeah. <laughs> I mm -hmm. wasn't trying to give it to my students. I wasn't trying to um, talk the language so that my colleagues, I really just happened to be at the right place at the right time. If I would have been in a Jesuit institution, maybe at 15, I would have developed these skills because I see these skills in our students, the skills of really looking inward and not being afraid by what you see. And, you know, again, it's a little bit shameful, but it wasn't until I was 36, 35, 36, and I'm only 41. So it's only been, you know, a few <laughs> years where I thought, I like myself. I like myself through and through. And that's another vibe, right? That's another thing where when you're with people who are really proud of who they are, know that they have a lot of growth to do. I have a ton of growth to do. I would love some feedback on that too. <laughs> but, you know, for, for the most part and generally, I like myself and I've done that, that sort of um, excavation and exploration inward, I think is what allows me to then make the conscious choice to bring that out into the world. Yeah. Um, and so many times I see my students hiding who they are because mm -hmm. they're not quite sure what they think about it, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what I think about it. They're not quite sure what they think about themselves. Yeah. You feel me? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think that, you know, this, it, it reminds me of what you started us off with, which was, it's not a destination, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, what I've learned, you know, over time with my own practice as an instructor facilitator is mm -hmm. every week I'm checking in, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not just assuming that in the, you know, there was, you know, and if we're thinking about growth, I've seen growth in myself and even in the work that Brianne and I do in the sense that I think there was a part of us that thought, we build that foundation early on and it's there. Mm -hmm. And I still mm -hmm. believe that. And I also believe you build that foundation and then you keep reinforcing it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that has what has evolved for me over time is that because people come with new emotions, different emotions, different experiences, yeah. pandemics that you have to constantly be recalibrating. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think the, the thing that I worry about that I see in the K to 12 space is yeah. we 
especially K to 12 and even in higher ed is I don't know that we often give our own faculty space for this kind mm. of exploration that faculty come into higher ed, you know, the traditional system says that you're an expert in something and you're an expert. Right. And I did some research with some faculty at Johns Hopkins several years ago, and they admitted to me that I am scared to death to show that I want to be a learner. Mm. Right. And so if, if their identity is expertise, how do we create spaces for faculty to explore the things we're talking about in this kind of space and do their own self-exploration if, if the system says, but you're already an expert. Yeah. Right. So it's, yeah. it's just, it's interesting. I appreciate hearing all the learning and growing that you're doing. So I, I love that. Yeah. And I, and I don't want to stop. I mean, just the other, it's, it's something that's pretty silly, but the example that came to mind as you were talking about all of that is, you know, curiosity and just mm -hmm. really fostering a sense of a lifelong curiosity. Um, the other day I was, you know, emailing back and forth with a colleague and um, they used a word that I didn't know. And I looked up the word and how to say it. Cause you know, when you're an ESOL kid, you just, you always <laughs> click on the, how do you say it? Um, and I wrote them back and I said, thank you so much for teaching me a new word. I had no idea what this word meant. Uh -huh. um, and of course, like people are like, well, you have a PhD, you should know everything. I mean, I think a lot of that Carrie is like, <laughs> just going to therapy and understanding your yeah. ego and um, <laughs> sort of putting your ego to rest a little bit at times. But yeah, I think a, a life, one of the things that I got from being here at Loyola, um, it, you know, I, I tell this to my students, I have a bachelor's degree and I have a, a PhD. And so I've been to school for a long time. And the most learning that I've ever done is here at Loyola as mm. a professor, uh, because I do think that I've been given the opportunity to, you know, be part of like, you know, service fellows and advising fellows. And we have all of these learning communities. And I do wonder about the, the K through 12 space. That's not an area of expertise for me, but I wonder if we organized it in learning communities where you just got to learn new things mm -hmm. for teachers and students and staff, if that might. And now I just copy and paste that all over my life, right? Like yeah. I, I know the steps that it takes to learn um, and what it feels like to learn in community, which I think is a little bit different than learning on your own. Oh, yeah. um, and I just copy and paste that for everything. I don't know that word. I'll look it up. Or I don't know that <laughs> thing. I'll look it up. Um, so yeah, I definitely do not consider myself an, an expert in anything. Yeah. And maybe that's the first step. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I think it's just part of the modeling that you talked about earlier. You know, I mean, you mm -hmm. were talking about it with <clears throat> thinking about acceptance, but modeling yourself as a learner and you can just sense from the way you, you share and, and write in your bio that uh, clearly you're coming with a lot of, a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience. And also you're somebody who's just so eager to learn. And when mm -hmm. you just said you've done your most learning at Loyola, I'm like, where have I done my most of my learning? I think it was mm -hmm. the time um, when I was both a student and a teacher at the same time. So I went mm -hmm. back later from 2017 to 2020 to do my doctorate. That's where Carrie and I met. She was my instructor. And um, I think that having that sort of dual identity at the time of being a student and a faculty member, I had this tremendous empathy for the students because I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, I hear you. How's it going for you? you know, this is what's going on with me in an, in an appropriate way. So I really learned a lot in, in all respects. I learned about good teaching from people like Harry. I learned about things that I don't care for as much as a student. And that mm. actively shaped what I did with my own classes. I mean, I was doing something 
in a sync session in the evening. And then the next day I would make changes. Mm-hmm. And so much of it had to do with feedback and in hindsight, sort of this idea of belonging and establishing relationships, which was done remarkably well in a fully online program. And one of the things that really struck me was actually was the way that Carrie was teaching because she was using language that I understood. Mm. I was so afraid of coming into this fancy Hopkins program that I'd be <laughs> bombarded by these uber smart people using words that I didn't know. <laughs> one will have to look up every word you know but what carrie did was she connected like she resonated with students and she's like look you're all professionals you're all doing all sorts of things and you don't know this like that's why you came you came to learn this so let's share that that same mentality i think we can use with our 18 year old students and i told them you know my my freshman just a couple weeks ago i i don't think you know all that much about speech language pathology probably not (laughs) but you are coming here with 18 years of life So let's tap into that. Let's connect with that. And to me, that's one of the first steps of laying the groundwork for the acceptance is to acknowledge that you're not a subject matter expert. You shouldn't be. That's why you're paying a lot of money to come here. Right. At the same time, though, you're bringing a lot. And if we can connect to those things, I think there's so much power there. Circling back to your comments about cognitive load, I think that Mm. this kind of stuff takes a lot of energy to do. Mm -hmm. And I think to be effective, you have to do it all the time, like Carrie said. So we're laying that groundwork and like what sort of patterns or routines can you implement into your classes every day or every other day so that students Mm -hmm. have that sense of assurance that that wasn't just a one-off day that she was feeling like touchy-feely or connected. This is who she is and this is what she wants for us and this is how we are in this space. I think that's so important, that consistency. Yeah. Carrie, what do you think? You've got something in your mind. No, I was just mm-hmm. I'm just writing down these notes. I was I'm still thinking about that word acceptance. Um mm-hmm. and it's not that I disagree with you. I think Yeah. I ahead. like I like curiosity better. Like I feel yeah. like curiosity leads to acceptance mm-hmm. that if you engage in any conversation with anyone with curiosity versus comparison or feedback or judgment, mm-hmm. right? If you come curious, mm-hmm. I think that that leads to inclusion and acceptance and all the things you're talking about. Yeah. The other thing that came up for me, Brianne, when you were, as soon as you said cognitive load is I was like, hmm, I don't know. Right. Because I think one on the one hand, it's always a yes and right for us, Brianne, we, yeah. we don't use that word, but, um, you know, I can see where there'd be cognitive load perhaps temporarily, but I find that the, the irony of all of this hard work is that it's going to make your life easier. <laughs> eventually, <laughs> eventually, yeah. like when I hit the sweet spot with my students and I've, I've, I'm starting to see it in my first Loyola class is when I can come and say, I'm tired too. And so because yeah. I'm tired too, we're going to do this a little bit more gent, you know, gentler than we had planned. Yeah. Or, um, you know, when things were going on with the pandemic and I'd be working with doctoral students, we would do a check-in and they're like, I'm so worried, Mm -hmm. right? Whatever that is. And then you play with that emotion and you integrate it really quickly into what you had planned for content. And Mm -hmm. so uh, in some ways, I feel like creating curiosity and inclusion and belonging also makes, can make life a little bit easier, right? And Mm -hmm. and because you're not worried so much about putting on airs and knowing all the answers Mm -hmm. and not making a mistake. It's just like, I am who I am. Um, and the last thought I had, and I'll, I'll be quiet and make space for others, was around 
I just, I also love the idea of a learning community and I've started mm-hmm. using that word. I I was using it in things that I would write and ways I would describe things, but I actually use it with my students more and more. I want them to feel like we are a community because for me, community is just what you said, Brianne. It's that I'm acknowledging that I don't have all the answers and that mm-hmm. I value and am very genuinely curious. There's that word again about what they're going to bring to this space and what I'm going to learn from them. And so I think learning community for me, I hope elicits that sort of sense of belonging for them. But those are the things I was thinking about. (laughs) Yeah, Carrie, and I want to go back to the the cognitive load thing. I I think what you're saying, and maybe I haven't gotten there yet, so I'm looking forward to it based on your description is, you know, accepting and well, let's not use the word, but being curious is a habit. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that our, that our current educational system is really set up for curiosity. So at first it might feel like cognitive load, like you're making a decision and you're creating a habit that is, wasn't quite there, but eventually you're able to it's, it's, you know, secondhand because you, you sort of retrain yourself to look at life in that way. Um, and I will say that when I think about the conversations that don't nourish me as much, or, you know, we all have um, conversations with, with folks that maybe you, you're not putting your 100% into, that becomes more of a cognitive load the longer you mm. do this, right? Because when you can't sit in who you really are, or there are things you can't really say because whatever position you're in, that does become a little burdensome after you've been doing the the sort of curiosity and acceptance and vulnerability for a while. So it, it's maybe a good like internal sign. And I, I wonder if I could ask you all a question about that. Like, what are some of the internal signs day to day? Because I know that we've all drank this Kool-Aid. We're passionate. We go into the class and we're curious. We're connecting with our students. What are some internal signs for you that you've like maybe lost your way in that or that you're not following, um, that, th- that things aren't going exactly as you expected them to go? Like, and you got to get back to the basics. You've got to get regrounded. How do you sort of reground yourself when things aren't going quite right in those spaces? When you say not quite right, do you mean that I've lost focus on the relationship, the, the relationships students. with the students? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you have a thought, Brianne? I do. I mean, I guess I would say that I have a really different relationship with my graduate students versus my undergraduate students. And I'm still developing that because this is my second year. I've taught grad students in the past, but it was pre-pandemic and that just seems a long time ago. This is my second year teaching this particular course, and it's so content heavy. (laughs) I'm feeling like the graduate course, the graduate course. Yes. And because I'm in year two of it, you know, Mm. I know the content, but I don't like it. There's just a difference when you've taught something several years. Actually, for me, I think it's after year two that I really feel grounded in it. Um, I feel that I focus more on content and a little bit less on connection with that group than Mm. I do with my undergraduate students. And for me, it, it has to be the reverse. Like I have to prioritize the connection to then get to the content. That doesn't mean the number of minutes in the class is swapped. So if my mm-hmm. class is an hour and 15 minutes, I'm not spending an hour and 10 on connection and only five on content. But I think the way I start to infuse it brings me energy. Like I literally mm-hmm. feel 
that sense of being on in a good way, not like theatrically, mm-hmm. but really engaged. There's a sense of energy that I feel when I'm in the groove of like connecting. Mm. I've got great eye contact. I've asked good questions. I'm getting good feedback. They're asking me questions. I can say, I don't know and be okay with that without that like kind of feeling of panic and closing off and like my instinct to go to my notes sort of thing. Mm. It's for me, it's a very physical feeling that I have when I, when things are going well. And so in the graduate course, I feel like I'm really learning how to infuse that. And it's better this year than it was last year. To me, there is a lot of effort there. In undergrad, where I'm very comfortable, it's it feels less effortful, Kara, to your point before. Um, but on the graduate side, I'm really having to work to do that. Mm. And I take so much from the energy that the students are bringing. So I, yeah. I, I feel like I'd like a, put a, a gauge on it or like a measure of that in the yeah. class. Yeah, I think, and I own a lot of that. I think. Sorry, I didn't mean to mm-hmm. interrupt you there. Yeah, yeah I I agree with you, Brian. When I was trying to think about how do I know when I'm off course, I feel it in my body for sure. Mm. Yeah, no question. That's and good. I feel it in my body, and then I notice it in my responses. It's not that I'm mean or anything, but I, <laughs> I, I just get more less flexible, I guess. I don't know what the right oh. word, I, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm like, cause I, cause what happens, I think I get it in my body and I'm tense and I'm nervous. And then I'm like, okay, we got to get more regimented. Right. Yeah. Um, like tight. Yeah. Yeah. Tight. The, I think the good thing for me, and this is taken speaking of habits, Mariana, the, I think the good thing for me is I've developed enough uh, critical self-awareness over the years mm-hmm. that like mm-hmm. I immediately am almost having an out-of-body experience where I'm like okay what are I'm able to reflect in in the moment to say what's going on why are, right and then after class I'm like why was I feeling I can ask myself the right questions now not just like yeah. what went wrong but like why am I feeling that way why are you reacting this way what is this really about and then what I usually do and I I know I did this with Brianne's cohort several times is I may hold a meeting with students and say, I need some feedback mm-hmm. you know, and anybody who's willing to come in, you know, 10 minutes early. And I want to, and I'm actually going to do that with my class tonight. Cause like often happens in graduate classes, we started having a discussion about a book and there were a couple of people who hated the book um, <laughs> and started, you know, telling me all the reasons why. And I was like, Oh, I didn't do a good job of preparing ourselves for these kinds mm. of conversations. So I'm going to do a little mm-hmm. debrief. Nothing, nothing terrible happened. I, I just felt myself that tension starting. And so I have for no sure. problem. Yeah. I have no problem in terms of recalibrating. I really have no problem anymore. Just telling the students I need some feedback. I think yeah. I, I need to to change and grow and do better by you and our community. And so let's talk about this. And I don't really have any problem doing that anymore. I think that was one of the biggest lessons I learned from you as an instructor, that it's mm-hmm. great to ask for feedback. And why would mm-hmm. we not? Because they're the people who know the most about what's happening in the classroom. Yeah. So Yeah, I yeah. did this for this Loyola class. I, and then this is such an old, an old, um, strategy in education, those three, two, one tickets, you know, where you three things you learn, two questions you have, and I don't, you can make it anything you want. And when I added it to the course, I was like, oh, it's just good to, you know, that's a good thing to do. And what I realized this semester is that has been such a rich source of data for me. And Mm -hmm. I use it every single class and I keep thanking them and saying, you, I, I just so appreciate their commitment to responding because sometimes it doesn't work because the students won't respond, but they, right. 
right? It doesn't like those tickets only work as well as they're willing to provide feedback. And some, for some reason, maybe we just did a really good job in the first couple of classes. They have provided so much feedback. So it's just, so little things like that can Mm -hmm. really be a rich source of data and help you, you know, cultivate that sense of belonging. And especially, and I'm sure both of you have seen this, like when you start using the data and the students see you using the data. Yes. Whoa. Right. Talk about building inclusion and being seen and belonging. Like feedback is such an opportunity to cultivate belonging. And we often don't realize that. There's a, one of my favorite psychologists, um, Philip Goff talks about, we measure what we care about. And that's how I always present it to my classes. Mm -hmm. I am getting your feedback because I care about you and I'm measuring what I care about. Um, And I don't know, it brings tears to my eyes to to think of research methods and measurement in ways that are a little bit more heartfelt. Um, So I think that's what you're doing, Carrie. You're you're measuring what you care about. Absolutely. I love that. How do you spell that person's name? G-O-F-F. It is he G-O-F-F. Does a lot of work. Okay. Yeah. He does a lot of work on policing and has a wonderful TED talk. Okay, cool. Well, Brianne, I don't know. I mean, I feel like this has been such a great conversation. I, I don't know if you have a last question you want to ask before we sign off or. No, no. My last question is really just an invitation to Mariana to, to share anything else that we didn't get to that you were hoping to, to talk about mm. today. No, I mean, I think that first question really teed us up. And I, I think the the biggest thing that I wanted to talk to you all about um, and get your opinion on um, was this, or get feedback, was this idea that belonging is really not a, a solid state. Um, and that even within the romantic relationships that we're in, we can feel seasons of belonging and seasons of, oh, you know, I, I don't quite belong here. How are we going to get back to that? And I, I don't know if that's hopeful or if it's pessimistic. But to me, the fact that it can change from place to place tells me that I need to be not um, vigilant, but present, Right present in understanding from moment to moment, whether I'm feeling belonging and whether I'm creating belonging. And um, beyond the the sort of like literature and research on this, I, I think it, it is that that feeling, but knowing that it can change means that I'm constantly striving to create it or engage in it or feel it. So I, I think that's the the biggest idea that I've been sort of wondering about for the past few weeks. Yeah. I think we're going to have to have a part two <laughs> on, <that. laughs> on the podcast. Well, just, yeah. I just wrote down seasons of, seasons of belonging. Cause I think yeah. as I reflect on my own relationship, I mean, we've been together for a very long time mm-hmm. and th- this is not a rom-com relationship, right? Like I'm so tired of <laughs> yeah. those movies. Cause it, as much as I loved those movies growing up, I was going to say, Carrie, you love those. I was, I, I am a closet <laughs> rom-com watcher, but it's such foolish, such foolish movies. Cause it, it really, I mean, to me, I'm so grateful for my, that my relationship with my partner, because what makes it such a wonderful relationship for me is that there's always a sense of belonging, you know, even mm-hmm. as my moods and our, you know, feelings towards each other fluctuate like they should in relationships. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how it is a season of belonging. And yet there's also 
a constants of belong some kind of belonging, mm-hmm. right? And I mm-hmm. I'd love to explore that more with with both of you. I think that to me yeah. that's very hopeful. That feels very yeah. grounded and hopeful. So yeah. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Mm. Definitely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mariana. It was so great thank to talk you. with you. I propose the next one in person. Yeah, How much fun with that, right? <laughs> Great. Well, we really appreciate your coming on. I know our listeners are going to love it. Thank you so much. Yep. See you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.